0: How is Gen AI impacting the tax function? Here are some thoughts from EY and Real-Time Insights.
1: The best way I can analogize, if you think back to 30 years ago with spreadsheets, at that point in time, most tax planning and processes were done with a pencil, paper, and a calculator. But everyone thought that was going to remove the need for tax professionals. The reality is that they learned how to code spreadsheets. They learned how to build better business insights, worse scenarios. And years and years later, there's more tax jobs than ever. And so we see AI as having the same impact. Learn more at EY.com.
0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal.
3: And I'm Tracy Alloway.
0: Tracy, um, you know, of course, on our last episode, we talked about the sanctions that are being imposed against Russia. And they're really Mm -hmm. extraordinarily dramatic. Obviously, we've seen the Russian financial sector get uh, pounded. All kinds of disruptions, Russian equities listed abroad, their value in many cases going to zero, numerous companies often just voluntarily sort of washing their hands of the Russia business. But of course, as everyone understands, the one huge, I guess it's the elephant in the room, one area that has not been directly targeted is uh, is energy.
3: Right. And this is really, I don't want to say the crux of the whole issue, but certainly this is something that has played into the fact that Putin invaded Ukraine in the first place. There's a huge reliance on Russian natural gas in Europe. And I think this is well understood and well established now. And even before the recent actions, prices had been going up. People were talking about inflation and energy crisis. And then this all made it worse. But... On the one hand, all of this plays into the geopolitical situation. So there's an argument to be made that Putin feels more empowered in invading Ukraine because he knows that Europe relies on his country for its gas needs. And of course, sorry, I don't know where I'm going with this. There's a lot to say.
0: There, there is an extraordinary uh, bit to say. I guess one of the questions is, why wasn't Europe more Prepared, or why wasn't why hadn't Europe already taken steps to perhaps wean itself off of uh, Russian natural gas and oil and coal, and of course, yeah. uh, there was the annexation of Crimea oh, yeah. in 2014. So it's not like these geopolitical concerns suddenly just came out of nowhere.
3: No, this is where I was going with it. Actually, was that Putin has a really good grasp of the energy situation and seemed to understand that Europe needs. Russian gas. But at the same time, it doesn't feel like Europe necessarily understood that or if they understood yeah. it, it doesn't seem like they did anything about it. Everything just sort of went on as it did before. And even after the first invasion of Ukraine and you know the situation in Crimea in 2014, even after that, you didn't really see Europe back away from Russia in any meaningful way. Even though, as we discussed uh, with Zoltan Pozar recently, you did see Russia take steps to sort of insulate itself from the West.
0: And of course, we're talking about Europe broadly. But there's obviously sort of a specific, you know, the the key country in Europe from the sort of uh, uh, Russian gas reliance that a lot of this revolves around is Germany, because it is an extremely Mm -hmm. rich and successful country. It also is extremely reliant on natural gas. And, you know, it's sort of taken some odd energy choices because this is a country whose leadership has talked a lot about going green and sustainability and all that. And yet it's actually really not done well on hitting some of its emissions goals. It's phased out nuclear, but it also that means it's more reliant on coal, more reliant on gas. And maybe in the long term, it will one day be on uh, wind power and solar power and be all renewables. But that seems very long term. Right here and now, its emissions are going up and its dependence on Russia is acute.
3: Yeah, and I think that's become very, very apparent in the way, well, just the way the whole crisis has unfolded. I will say we're recording this on March 2nd, and I'm looking at nat gas, the spot price on the Bloomberg terminal now. It jumped 60 percent earlier today. And of course, it's another fresh record, but it's been at fresh records for (laughs) multiple times in recent days and uh, indeed in recent weeks. So you can feel all of these tensions and all of this pressure, all of these potentially um, bad policy choices uh, manifesting themselves in these record energy prices.
0: Exactly right. So we want to like push the conversation forward and get more insight mm-hmm. into this crisis, this war, and the German situation specifically. I'm very excited for this conversation. We've had our guest on one time before. We are going to be speaking with Matt Klein. He's the founder and publisher of The Overshoot, which is a phenomenal uh, newsletter on uh economics and the economy and of course he is the co-author of the book Trade Wars Are Class Wars. Matt Klein, thank you so much for coming uh coming back. Thank you very much for having me. So, you know, we talked the last time we talked to you, I think maybe it was uh maybe it was in 2020 and you had uh you published this book Trade Wars Are Class Wars. And of course, you know, going back to 2020 and 2019, around that time when you think trade wars Obviously, you think uh, U.S.-China tension because, of course, there were the various uh, you know, Trump tariffs and so forth. But a big part of your book was not just about U.S.-China, of course, but also this third actor, Germany specifically. Why do you you like, talk about to us about like, what was their role in the story? Before we even get to the current crisis, why were they like, sort of like a key player or uh, actor to be understood in this sort of global context?
4: The basic argument of the book is that for a very long time, since maybe 20, 25 years or so, the, the world economy as a whole has been suffering from the systematic shortage of consumer demand. And that's ended up creating a lot of tensions as businesses are trying to capture this finite demand and as consumers uh, over, you know, in different parts of the world try to compensate for the lack of income that is a result of this. And so, one of the major drivers of this shortfall of consumer demand was Germany, and then later Germany, uh, you know, extended to the rest of Europe as a whole macro policy in terms of both business investment being weak, and in terms of government policy essentially overtaxing, underspending, and squeezing demand for goods and services. And then that ended up redounding in all sorts of different ways in terms of higher debt levels and financial crises and stuff. And the argument of the book being that. Policies in Germany, not just government policies, but really the policies of business leaders and other elite actors in society ended up leading to systematic problems for the world as a whole. And that ended up leading to problems both for people in Europe and people outside of Europe. And even if that wasn't something we think of in the trade war context, as you were saying, like the Trump and China stuff was very, you know, obvious what this was. And it was nevertheless leading to tremendous amounts of tension within Europe. And you could see that throughout the Euro crisis in terms of the conflicts. And you know, you have people like the Dutch finance minister blaming lazy Southern Europeans for things, and then you have Southern Europeans talking about fascists in the North. And, and that was all really, I think a reflection of the fact that you had really bad economic outcomes driven by bad economic policy.
3: So you mentioned um, like a bad situation caused by policy decisions. Could you maybe just elaborate on that a little bit more as it relates to the current Russia situation and the energy landscape that we were talking about a little bit in the intro? How much does a country like Germany actually depend on Russia for its energy needs?
4: Germany is quite dependent on on Russia. So for the European Union as a whole, if we look at basically the period right before the pandemic, because the pandemic kind of distorts things a little bit, about 19% of all energy came from Russian imports. So that's a lot of that includes natural gas, that includes coal, that includes oil. Natural gas is the most significant one for these purposes, because it's not easy to substitute it. You know, if Russia doesn't sell oil to Europe, someone else is going to buy that oil. Europe can therefore buy oil from whoever, you know, Previously, was not buying Russian oil, so it's, it's more fungible. Gas, on the other hand, is mostly transported by fixed pipelines. And so therefore, you really, you know, you can substitute to a degree, but it's much more challenging to do that. Germany sort of compounded this problem in a couple of ways. Some of which, one is, is that they, you know, made the decision after the uh, Fukushima nuclear disaster in Japan to start decommissioning all of their own nuclear power plants. And so right. a, a quite substantial source of clean and, uh, you know, reliable, Local, locally sourced energy is shut off, and I think they basically—they're either about to—I think they—they they they had been currently scheduled, had been scheduled to turn off the last of the nuclear plants. I think at the end of this year. I think now that's starting to change. But that was basically something that had been going on over the past ten years of turning off nuclear power. Another thing that they've done, which I think we can relate sort of more to their macro policy mix, is that they didn't invest enough in coming up with replacements. So while there has been a real commitment since I think about 2010 towards greening the energy mix, they call it the energy transition. And they have invested a lot in wind and solar power, particularly wind power. Hasn't been enough to offset the loss of nuclear. And so one of the things that actually had been, you know, bridging the difference was that they increased their coal consumption quite a bit, uh, which is ironic given their you know desire to be more environmentally friendly. The other thing they did, of course, is that they imported even more Russian gas. So the story, the connection between Russia and Germany on gas is, is you know, goes back quite a long time. Basically, you, you can really sort of argue that it goes back to the 1960s before even Russia had gas when the German government under Willy Brandt decided that they wanted, they, they called Ostpolitik and the idea that the, Germany would sort of be a, a bridge between the rest of the the West and the Eastern Bloc and have sort of a friendly relations and, you know, just their own sort of distinct history and, and culture. And, and they, they would be try to be more friendly to the USSR and the, and the rest of the Warsaw Pact countries. And so one of the ways that that manifests is once Russia started developing gas fields and wanted to export it, that Germany was pretty eager in building pipelines. And this goes back to the You know, early nineteen eighties, they start building the pipelines. In fact, this was something that the Reagan administration criticized the German government for at the time because they thought it would be increasing Europe's dependence on the Soviets and potentially become a security risk. The German argument was engagement is going to be better. We want to integrate Russia into, you know, the Western economy that's going to moderate their behavior. And if you look just at the 1980s, maybe that was a good argument because Russia, in fact, did, you know, the Soviet Union rather did in fact become you know, more modern over the course of the 1980s. And that did become a, you know, constructive relationship. Nevertheless, though, as time progressed, that you know, the question is, why do they keep sticking with this? You know, you mentioned that the, the first Russian invasion of Ukraine in 2014, the annexation of Crimea, might have led to a shift in behavior. It did not. The project that Russia and German businesses had been working on for quite some time called Nord Stream 2, another pipeline basically to increase Russian gas flows or Germany had been in progress before that and continued to accelerate after this total German imports through the first Nord Stream pipeline, which goes um, under the Baltic Sea, went up. And so actually overall energy imports of gas were significantly higher by the time you get to 2019 than you were even in, in 2013, which is the exact opposite of what you'd think would have happened if, if uh, you know, European policymakers were concerned about reliance on Russia. And it now puts them in a situation where it's kind of challenging, which is you could theoretically cut your gas consumption by you know, a significant amount, 20% or whatever. But is that actually something you can do on a dime? Maybe. Um, I mean, I guess the good news is that winter is mostly over, so they don't need it for heat. You know, that does create a lot of leverage. I mean, as, as you mentioned, Tracy, the pricing of natural gas is so high because the supply was already being constrained. I mean, I think one thing that hasn't been appreciated enough, I was surprised to see it myself, is that, you know, until they stopped making their website publicly accessible, Gazprom, which is the Russian company that produces and transports the gas, they publish daily data on how much gas they shipped to European Union customers and by which route. And the last data we have is the weekend before they invaded Ukraine. But you know, what you can see is that in 2021, basically starting around sort of the end of August of 2021, the gas flows started falling dramatically. And Basically, if you look at the beginning of, of 2022, so it had been going down kind of steadily. And if, by the time you get to the beginning of, of 2022, so like from January 1st through February 22nd, I was right before the invasion. We're talking about 36% lower uh, deliveries to EU customers compared to the January through August 2021 average. So it's a really dramatic drop. And basically, the, there, there are a whole bunch of different pipelines. A bunch go through Ukraine. There's one that goes directly to Germany. And then there's one that goes through Belarus and Poland uh, to Germany. and with the exception, the only one that really had maintained its flow was the one that goes straight to Germany. The other ones were getting really squeezed. I don't know what has been happening in the past you know, week and a half, but those data are no longer available. But I mean, the price signal suggests that maybe they've squeezed it even further. You know, as Tracy was saying, like, that, that I think that it was reasonable for Putin to conclude that this did give them the Russians a fair amount of leverage and that they were, in fact, trying to use that.
0: How will generative AI impact the way financial services firms work? Here are some thoughts from EY and Real-Time Business.
2: At an enterprise level, how will it impact the way we work? Just like how internet changed all our lives, this technology has the potential to have a step change in how we fundamentally operate. Let me give you a few examples of what some of the use cases our clients are exploring. We are seeing our clients explore a few knowledge management use cases, for example, in, in case of wealth and asset management, providing their financial advisors with right information so that they can serve their clients better. Similarly, a claims agent and in insurance or a contact center representative in case of banking and capital markets. The The theme that we are seeing is where the machine comes in and provides contextual insights to enable the humans make better decisions better actions in a faster manner.
1: Learn more at EY.com. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L dot com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE.
0: So it's interesting you mentioned that the the German-Russia figurative and literal pipeline. It's gone back several decades. I learned on our last episode that we did actually that our current Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, several years ago even wrote a book on uh, called Ally Versus Ally, America, Europe, and the Siberian Pipeline Crisis about this dispute in 1982 on this exact thing. So now I kind of want to read that book because now it's come up in two separate uh, podcasts and So it seems highly relevant. Something I'm, uh, you know, something I'm curious, you know, to sort of like bridge this. And I guess this is really the key question is. So we talked at the beginning about this sort of and this is what your book is about, this sort of demand constraining policy, macro policy from Germany. You know, in theory, you could. Run balanced budgets and do better on nuclear or sorry, do better on energy investments. And theoretically, they could have invested more in renewables or domestic sources of energy or LNG terminals that would have allowed them to become less reliant on Russia while still maintaining a balanced budget uh whether that's wise or not. But can you talk a little bit more about the sort of like macro stance that uh the German state has had for the last 20, 25 years and the sort of sclerotic underinvestment that they've seen in the energy sector?
4: The context here is is that when the Berlin Wall fell in 1989 and West Germany prepared the Federal Republic of Germany, West Germany prepared to absorb the states of East Germany into a new and large federal republic, there was a surge of spending both by the government and by businesses to make that transition happen. And you basically have the last like great boom in the German economy for, I guess, at this point, over 30 years. The Bundesbank, which is Germany's central bank at the time, responds by really aggressively raising interest rates because they're worried about inflation. Then you have you know, pretty dramatic reversal by the federal government in terms of spending cuts. After a couple of years later, compounded by the fact that it turns out that you know a lot of the optimism that people had about the ability to transform East Germany into a part of Germany that be as productive as West Germany, that optimism was not validated for. Well, ever enough for a very long time. They, they, there was a hope that a lot of East German businesses could be transformed. Um, you'd get this huge boom from privatization and, and better management. That didn't happen. You just had the government instead ended up taking a huge loss. They finally wrote it down in 1995, and then they basically spent a long period of time afterwards. There's a really nasty recession. All these people in East Germany losing their jobs. You have the high interest rates in the early 90s. You then you have essentially the the budget. You know restraint cutbacks because the german government felt they would just spent too much and they just signed a treaty um with their european neighbors that they that they themselves have pushed for um for balanced budgets as part of preparation for the creation of, of the common currency all that led to a huge squeeze and you can look at things like you know construction activity other measures of business investment you have this massive decline in the 1990s and a very long period of stagnation it was really painful and in fact was was the reason why the german left had its best elections ever in 1998 after years of you know despite the euphoria of reunification that was done under the german conservative party the the christian democrats you know in the beginning of the 1990s and the late 1980s that the the social democrats and the greens come into power for the first time uh, as, a, as a coalition in 1998 and incidentally the, the person who led that coalition, Gerhard Schroeder, then later went on to become a very prominent person uh, at Gazprom right. and leading the uh, Nord Stream Two project. I think he might still be on it. Um, yeah, I
0: think he's technically as of right now. I think he's still. Yeah, doing which it. is
4: kind of remarkable. Um, Awkward. Yeah. So, they, so that was the the context there. So, Schroeder comes into into power with this coalition government, and one of the things they want to do is, you know, increase spending. They want to have lower interest rates, and especially after the, the downturn of the early 2000s, which hit Germany pretty hard. It's, it's a global downturn the tech bust that was not unique to the United States. And they can't, ironically, you know, we think of now the Germans being, you know, the major blocks on, you know, looser monetary policy in the ECB, the, the Germans being the major constraint on the ability for governments to borrow and spend in response to downturns, because we have, a, you know, the recollection of how things were in say 2010, 2011, 2012. But if you go to like 2000, 2001, or even 1998, that was, it was the opposite, actually. The Germans were pressuring the ECB for looser policy because relative to their domestic needs, ECB was way too tight. And the ECB just they said, no, like, you know, I, I, there's, a, there's a press conference you can find, I don't remember exactly what the date was, it's in the book, where some journalist asked the ECB about the request they'd been getting from, from Schroeder and from his finance minister, Oscar LaFontaine. And, the head of the ECB goes, well, I hear, but I do not listen. Uh, and, you know, OK, so, you know, they have another like severe downturn and, you know, they, they sort of push for some modest exemptions to the budget caps. So they're basically the, the EU treaty that they'd signed um, in Maastricht in the Netherlands back in 1992 was that you can't have a budget deficit more than 3% of GDP. That number, as it happens, if you go back in the history, was basically something that some French Relatively young French bureaucrat made up in the nineteen eighties and thought it was you know you know three was a nice round number. I think it reminded him of the the Trinity or something. But there's no economic significance to this, and, but it was a constraint. And so Germany and France, which were both having you know rough period uh, you know downturns in the early two thousand slow recoveries, pushed. Get the limit of that, but it wasn't really. They didn't really exceed it very much, and it didn't really help that much. They were still relatively constrained in their budgets, and and the way these things generally work is that if you have a limit on how much you can spend on your budget, it's easier to cut the investment side than anything else. Because what well, the alternative is you're gonna you're gonna lay off a lot of you know school teachers and and cut you know unemployment benefits to a lot of people. Like that's if comp- that compared to well we're gonna delay you know fixing this road or building that bridge or whatever. It's much easier to cut the investment Spending. And this is particularly true in a place like Germany, where, you know, in some ways like the United States, it's, it's a very much of a federal system and a lot of the spending is done by the German states or by uh, local, even, you know, sub-local, you know, sub-state local governments. And those were also subject to sort of a national constraint. And so they really are being pressured because they can't, you know, their ability to borrow is very limited. And so they're going to cut investment spending much harder. That sort of the setup going in really for, the, you know, the past 20 years. And, you know, the, the German government certainly did also cut, you know, welfare spending over this period as well to try to meet its budget commitments. They later then, you know, became convinced that this was such a good idea. They actually put in what's called the debt break or the, the Schultenbremse. Right, of, right. That, that was, you know, very extreme, basically saying that you can't have a, a, a cyclically adjusted budget deficit for the government as a whole of more than like half a percent of GDP and the problem of course with this among other things is that you know it's very sensitive to how you define what the cycle is and 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 you know if if you set it up especially when they did after a very long period of growth being very very slow um, and arguably you know significantly below where Germany should have been then you sort of locked yourself in permanent stagnation and that really limits your options so even though the government did try to invest more it didn't really get anywhere I mean one thing that's really striking and this is we mentioned this in the book. I mentioned it more recently as well. Is that if you look at investment spending in Germany, after subtracting you know depreciation, which is an important thing to be considering, you know the, you know what's like the new investment, net depreciation and maintenance, it was negative for basically some like 2002 until 2018. So <laughs> you basically had a long situation of the you know the the public capital stock shrinking in in real terms. And, you know, unsurprisingly, that's that's going to create problems. I mean, I don't think they anticipated the specific problem, but that's going to create problems, all sorts of things. You had bridges collapsing and and roads being shut, you know, in the 2010s because they were just unusable and they hadn't been maintained. This is obviously much more extreme, but it's a a symptom of the same problem.
3: So when it comes to spending, there is this perception out there that, you know, maybe maybe it's something in the German character and they just don't like um, spending money that much. But as you mentioned, you know, it. In recent years, it does seem like we've seen inklings of a break in that attitude. And I guess my question is, what are the chances that recent events build on that momentum and you actually see a place like Germany become more willing to spend and invest in either public infrastructure or energy security?
4: I'm actually very optimistic about this. I mean, I was optimistic before the, this recent crisis. Um, for the reasons that you're laying out, I, I, you know, these cultural, they, I mean, I'm not saying culture doesn't matter, but I think it's very easy to sort of over attribute economic outcomes to cultural differences. There, there are a lot of examples of places where, you know, people are very confident the culture does one thing. And then later they do the exact opposite. and They say it's the same culture. And it's like, that can't be the case. Uh-huh. Um, so I, I think there was a recognition even among I think the reason it was so challenging is because you had such political stability in Germany for so long, stability and also stagnation. So basically in the early 2000s, partly because of these constraints that they didn't really have much of a choice, you had the center left parties being the ones that actually were really pushing austerity in the early 2000s in terms of things like cutting unemployment benefits and basically squeezing investment to make room for other spending within the constraint of, you know, Europe's budget rules. And then in 2005, what happens is that you have a very weird situation where the left-wing parties as a whole end up winning a majority of the seats in the Bundestag. But they don't. They, the reason that happens is because you have a split of the left where basically people on the left side of the Social Democrats ally with people who had, had been sort of like ex-communists in, in East Germany and were protesting these policy changes by the government at the time. So in theory, there was sort of like a you know, majority left coalition, but in practice, that would never have happened because it was, you know, an opposition to the existing policies. And so then you have, you know, the first of, of many grand coalitions where the conservative Christian Democrats ally with the social Democrats and then end up pursuing the exact same policies. And in fact, the way Merkel, uh, Angela Merkel, who becomes prime Minister, uh, chancellor, excuse me, chancellor at this point in time, you know, she basically neuters the opposition for what felt like a generation because she's like, oh, yeah, this was great. The stuff the social Democrats did was brilliant. And we want to continue their legacy and safeguard with all the good stuff they did for Germany, which basically means that the Social Democrats have a really hard time competing. And in fact, what ends up happening for many years is that they just keep allying as junior partners with the Christian Democrats. And so you have the two biggest parties at the center left and center right allied doing this. And so even though there is and there always was opposition within Germany, both politically and among sort of people who knew what they were talking about, it was never enough to really break through that deadlock. And it took a very long time for there to be movement there. The thing that changed was that in 2021, you finally had an election where, and this is partly due to the pandemic, partly due to sort of the good fortune of the fact that the Christian Democrats chose a singularly unpopular and and incompetent chancellor candidate, but they ended up losing and being cut out of power. And that created an opening for the Social Democrats to come in without cooperating with Christian Democrats, they had come in with the Greens. There was originally sort of a question of would they ally with the Greens alone? Would they ally with the Greens and maybe the left if, and some sort of reconciliation that didn't end up happening because they didn't win enough seats, or what ended up happening was ally with the Free Democrats, which there was a lot of speculation there about this being negative because the free democrats had long positioned themselves as being the most austere and the most committed to low taxes and budget restraint and the debt break. But one thing that had been, you know, showed up in the campaign, and I'm I'm pleased to say that I I foreshadowed this, you know, last summer before the elections in, in September was that, you know, they do say these things, but they also left themselves very open to the fact that you could get around these debt break rules with some financial chicanery and they didn't seem to mind. It was basically the way that the Germany's debt rules work is that if you have a, you know, a sort of segregated government enterprise that does its own with its own budget, as long as it doesn't take money from the state because it's losing money, it can issue as much debt as it wants to fund investments. And that's within Germany's rules. It's incidentally not within the European rules. That could potentially be a problem, but with Germany's rules, it's fine. And the FDP repeatedly said or implied they would be okay with that. And so you had a situation where the Greens very actively saying we need to invest more and we need to get rid of the debt break to invest more. The FDP says we don't need to get rid of the debt break, but we're willing to sort of look the other way. And then the SDP, which for, or excuse me, SPD, for a long, the Social Democrats for a long time, having been sort of on the same side as, as the Christian Democrats, they had come into their own over the previous few years. They'd been calling for more investment. And In fact, Schultz, who's the current chancellor, he was the finance minister in the previous government you know, from twenty eighteen through twenty twenty one and and while that was he was in charge there. Actually, investment did go up. It was the first time that investment net appreciation was positive. So there was already kind of a positive setup here. And people saying we need more investment. There was a recognition in Germany that needed to change. The business groups in Germany were saying there needed to be more public investment. As I said, you have enough like major road and bridge, clo- bridge closures. You have people you know, mocking Germany's train systems for being terrible compared to places like Spain. That eventually does have an impact. I mean, it took 20 years, but people did pay right. attention. And so, you know, even leading up to this, there was already that momentum. And I was optimistic about that. Then we see this happens. And uh, the German response has been dramatic, uh, absolutely dramatic. I mean, aside from the fact that Ostpolitik is thrown out the window, which was, you know, the Social Democrats creation, you have a situation where the FDP, which again, known for really strict, you know, budget discipline is saying, we are going to spend another 100 billion euros on defense. And sa- and when they were criticized by the opposition, Christian Democrats in in the Bundestag, Christian Linder, who's the finance minister and the head of the FDP, he basically laughed at him and said, this is an investment in our freedom. Why are you worrying about the debt levels here? We need this for our security. You know, this is an enormous number, by the way. I mean, I don't, you know, how it gets spread out over time is is a little ambiguous, but you add that with the fact that Schultz committed to spending at least 2% of GDP on defense, which is. Germany's, you know, obligation under NATO, but, you know, for many years, they've been spending like 1% of GDP on defense. Because, again, if you're feeling budget constrained, you're someone like Angela Merkel, cutting defense budget is a very easy way, relatively speaking, to, you know, meet your targets. That would seeming like a problem. And of course, the problem, you know, the, what the problem is that the Bundeswehr is like you know, lost so much capability. And you hear all these stories about how they couldn't do anything. And like there was some German... I think Army intelligence guy was stuck in Ukraine. He had to get like a you know civilian transport out or something. I mean, they, they didn't really have a lot of capabilities. And now they realize they need to do something dramatic. They didn't have, I think, you know, you were mentioning this, they didn't have any LNG import terminals. Europe as a whole does have a lot of LNG uh import capacity. Germany has none. So they're they are working on on fixing this stuff. And so I think I think it is encouraging that they realize that um, you know, the situation that they as they understood it. You know, is a lot different than you know what they'd been thinking, and that it needs a response, which incidentally is consistent with the history of many other countries, where you know national security risks lead to radical changes in you know domestic
2: investment.
0: Now, you mentioned that uh, at least the last of the nuclear plants had been scheduled to um, sunset at the end of uh, this year and maybe that'll be pushed off. If I'm not mistaken, the Green Party in Germany, like, this is, like, a core thing for them, right? Like, they were, were like, a prime mover against uh, nuclear for uh, decades, I understand. Do you think that, like, you know, there's going to be some, I I don't know, if, like, you have specific views on sort of, like, German energy policy down to the mix, but, you know, it seems unrealistic that anytime soon you're going to have uh, solar and uh, wind really do do all the lifting especially in the lack of like with the lack of like utility grade battery tech do you, do you sense any meaningful change uh, on that front well so yes i mean i think one
4: thing that's interesting here is that first of all they've said that they think they are going to you know not turn them all off at the end of the year and, and that is something that could not have been done without the consent of the greens the greens have been known for being anti-nuclear for a very long time however they also and This is actually arguably even more important part of their identity, at least in recent years, have been very hawkish on Russia and very much against uh, fossil fuel dependence. Sure. And in practice, what we've seen is that turning off nuclear has not meant that Germany has gotten greener. In fact, their emissions, carbon emissions record has been among the worst in any rich country precisely because they turned off the nuclear plants and substitute with coal. So I think that, you know. The Greens can read this just as well as anyone else. I think they know this. Again, the, the Greens have been the, consistently the most hawkish on Russia, in part because, unlike basically every other party, they don't have any kind of weird Russia baggage in terms of either, you know, ideological links or the oil, the, the gas pipelines, or supporting business interests of you know selling manufactured goods to Russia. So they they've always been the most um, you know relatively hawkish and 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 you know talking about a foreign policy of values. And in fact, the foreign minister is from the Green Party right now. So I think mean, there's definitely flexibility there. So if, if the choice that they face is turning on nuclear plants versus actively sending money to Russia in the middle of a situation where Russia is violently invading one of its neighbors, I, I, I would imagine you know, they, they'd be more flexible on that front. And I think that we're seeing that. I mean, and as, also, as you mentioned, like in the, in the short term, you know, solar and wind are great, but they're intermittent. And so you need something that's stable and You know, it's either going to be coal or gas or nuclear, and, you know, of those three, I mean, nuclear is clearly going to be preferable.
0: Why is everyone so excited about generative AI? Here are some thoughts from EY and Real-Time
1: Business.
2: What's changed? Why is everyone so excited? By now, you won't find anyone who has actually not played around with a version of a generative AI model. I think what makes it interesting and exciting is really comes down to two factors. One, the power of the technology, its ability to process millions and billions of data points and create a response that is so indistinguishably human-like is fascinating. It's like you're having a conversation with the AI model, like how you and I are having this conversation right now. The second is it's ease of use and ease of access. It really opens up people's mind for practical applications of this technology, both at an individual level or at an enterprise level.
1: Learn more at ey.com. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time.
3: So I realize we've been very focused on Germany here. Can you talk a little bit about how Russia's energy links have played into the current situation? And also one of the things that keeps coming up is this idea of, um, you know, the rest of the world has imposed these very strict and dramatic sanctions on Russia. But the thing they've left out is energy for obvious reasons. But now there's a sort of big question mark over whether or not That can, A, continue given that you see a lot of firms who are voluntarily self-sanctioning and just deciding that they don't want to have anything to do with Russian assets or they're worried about um, clearing through the system and things like that. So they're just not dealing in Russian energy at all. And B, it's unclear whether or not Russia will will be able to use the dollars and euros that it actually earns from its energy exports. And so there's a question of, well, why would they continue to do this if they're not going to be able to actually use that money. So how do you see all of that at the moment?
4: Yeah, those are all great questions. I mean, it it is an interesting question. Why would Russia keep pumping gas if they're getting money that they can't use? You can understand why they would keep doing it if they could use the money. And there's an argument for actually setting up sanctions in a way that they are forced to keep pumping the gas, but not really able to do a lot else with it, which arguably is what was set up, but it does create this tension. So, I mean, one theory I've heard, I have no idea if this is right, is that the Europeans actually do want Russia to cut off the gas, but they want Russia to be the ones to take the blame, which, I mean, I have no idea if that's right. I mean, that certainly would be a reasonable way of interpreting, you know, how things are playing out, you know, but then there's a question of how you deal with that. I mean, as I said, I mean, the good news is that winter is basically over, so you don't need it for heat the way you would have before. Um, You could imagine a situation where you're rationing electricity for, industrial consumers, and then you know, sort of hope that things get resolved one way or another before next winter. it is that is definitely a tricky question. I mean, because it's not like you, Germany is uniquely dependent on Russian gas. In fact, if anything, many other countries are even more dependent on on gas from Russia, basically all the countries to Germany's east and sort of southeast, because there isn't really a lot of other sources you can get. I mean, you can get gas from from Qatar, you get gas from Norway, um, the North Sea. There's some LNG coming in from the US, although the U.S. is sort of maxed out and we sell a lot to, to Asia. Um, you know, you could have rerouting of LNG. I mean, there's a world where, you know, Australian and, and American LNG is rerouted from Asia to Europe. But then, you know, that, create, you know, that creates new problems for other people. So there isn't an immediate obvious substitute. And that does theoretically give the Russians a lot of leverage. As I said, for all we know, they've already been cutting off. I just, we just don't have the hard data from like the past week, uh, week and a half. So that's a sort of interesting question there but it does potentially create, I mean, one of the reasons why before any of this happened, why Nord Stream 2, which was the the planned pipeline, it's basically finished, but that would have dramatically increased Russia's ability to send gas directly to Germany under the Baltic Sea. The reason why that was so controversial before all of this was because it would have meant that Russia could have sent gas to Germany directly and bypass all the countries that are in Eastern, Central and Eastern Europe that previously were able to get gas and be confident they could get a supply of gas because it's not as if there are a lot of pipelines that Germany could re, could use if they wanted to supply you know Poland, Czech Republic, Slovakia, Austria, the Baltic states, Hungary, Romania. those all depend on gas coming from Russia, and then some of that gets routed to Germany, but if it all went to Germany directly, then those countries would all get hosed and so that was like the big concern they had you know before any of this so you know those countries are still just dependent. Um, we're now in a situation where, at the moment, you're actually having gas being routed from those countries to Ukraine. A lot of the pipelines run through Ukraine. It had been the case that the Ukrainian government made a decent amount of uh, earned a decent amount of hard currency, so basically getting a transit fee from gas sent from Russia through those pipelines. That I mean, I'm guessing that's not happening right now. Um, and so you're having gas being sent the other way so that Ukraine can keep the um, you know the power on, but. Yeah, I mean it's a, it's a it's a the, the situation with gas and Russian, you know, energy security is, is a significant problem for all of these all of Europe really. It's basically you have to you have to go either as far west as places like France and Spain or north to like Sweden and Norway for it not to be an issue. And in those countries they have a lot more hydropower and a lot more nuclear and a lot more solar, but that's, you know, or they get LNG from elsewhere, but that's not, you know, but that's a lot of Europe is is very dependent on Russian gas
0: you know one of the things that and you you talked about this a little bit earlier is that you know with oil there are multiple prices of oil but they do tend to cluster and so there's brent oil and there's west texas oil and they're usually a few dollars apart but they go in the same direction the gas market isn't like that at all i mean the gas the price of what's What is that cubic meter uh is that a standard yeah uh,
4: yeah billions of cu- yeah, cubic meter yeah.
0: it's just completely different all it's just completely different all around the world at any given time and it's because it's so as you described there it's so infrastructure specific
4: yeah i mean not to like <laughs> be sort of obvious but one is a liquid and one is a gas and like liquids it's right. pretty easy to, you know you can put them in barrels you can put them on ships right. and like gases you know it's much harder to do that and that's why you know the invention of liquefaction which is where you turn the gas, you cool it and condense it into a liquid and then you can transport it on ships is, was such a revolutionary technology because it meant that you could move the gas all over the world. But, you know, until right. that happened um, and even, and, you know, it's still expensive to do that. Um, pipelines was the way you did it. I mean, natural gas in the US, pr- prices of natural gas in the US have been so much lower than in Europe and Asia for a long time because we have a lot of gas in the US and we have pipeline infrastructure that can transport it. But it's very difficult to send it over to places that don't. You know how the pipeline sending it across an ocean is very expensive so there is a lot of liquefaction capacity in the us there is a tremendous amount of liquefaction capacity that's currently been approved um, but has not yet been built if it does the us would be able to more than supply europe and asia with 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 gas uh in, in theory but you know it's it's very expensive to do that i mean all the transportation costs is why the the price differentials are so huge so even if the U S producers are responding the way you think they would to market signals where like if the price of gas, right. whatever is, I don't know, like six times or more or whatever in, in Europe than it is in the U S and they are responding to that, but you know, there are sort of hard physical limits and you could, you know, until the liquefaction capacity builds up a lot until the import terminals on the other side build up a lot, you know, that price differential is going to exist. And that's why Russian gas always had appeal. Europe has pipelines to gas from North Africa as well. And that's, and and from, you know, the North Sea and stuff. So they they do get other pipeline gas, but a lot of it comes from Russia. And so, I mean, it's going to be more expensive regardless, right? But the LNG is always going to be more expensive than Russian gas. But on the other hand, if Russia is cutting off the gas, or if you don't want to be dependent on Russian gas, then that's a price worth paying. I mean, as Linder would say, it's, you know, it's investment freedom. And so that's, uh you know, it's it's worth doing, but it, it is going to be more expensive.
3: So. Actually, that leads into something else I wanted to ask, which is naturally this idea of Russia sort of leaning or looking more towards China because of the various things and pressures that are happening in Europe. So obviously, Russia exporting more energy in various forms to China would appear to be an obvious option for it here.
4: Yeah, no, it would. I mean, but that sort of goes the other way, which is you'd need to build all the pipelines going the other direction. And so they could do that. They do have one pipeline. They call it the power of Siberia and it runs um, into China and they do export pipeline gas to China, but the volumes are pretty small. So, again, if we're looking at like 2019, which I think is sort of the most reasonable comp, you had like 75 percent of Russian gas going to EU um, in 2019 and was not. And so China is pretty small. I mean, most of China's gas. I mean, China actually has a lot of gas domestically and they get a lot of LNG. So they've definitely been trying to get more from Russia, but it will take a long time to put those pipelines together. I mean, basically, I don't know the exact time frame of how long it takes to build these things, but like, I would not be surprised if the time it takes for Russia to build pipelines to China to substitute, you know, to, to fully divert all the gas from that used to go to Europe. Probably would, I would not be, it's probably a comparable time timescale, like building out the capacity for Europe to get LNG from the rest of the world. So I don't know, like it's, I mean, it's not going to be kind of a fast thing. And of course, there's the fact that if Russia were to be doing this with China, it's at a period where unlike, you know, before Russia is a pariah state. And as you said, they're not having access to all the, the Western oil and gas services companies that actually know how to do this stuff. Cause all these things were built. I mean, like Nord Stream and stuff, that was a joint venture with European companies. That's where a lot of the, te- I mean, they have technical know-how in Russia, but a lot of it was done with, you know, European help. And so I'm sure China has the capacity as well, because they have their own domestic gas industry and Russia has the gas industry for a long time. But I mean, to the extent that they, they would want help from anyone and, the, and that Russia become a pariah state that would make it even, you know, comparatively more difficult for them.
0: Well, the the other element and thing I've been thinking about in this conversation is like, OK, Germany wants to spend a lot more and build up, perhaps build up terminals or other other forms of energy infrastructure and other other infrastructure. It's not a great time. I mean, it's not a great time to have to build setting aside the war specifically uh, it's not a great time to have to build anything physical, given the tightness in every commodity markets and thinking about the metal that would have to go into new pipelines and the steel and the cement and everything else that have to go into a terminal. It sort of speaks to, I guess, the tragedy of having been uh, so spendthrift for the last at least the last decade.
4: Yeah, thrifty. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because the Europeans have this phrase, which is so annoying. They talk about you. you fix the roof when the sun is shining. And it's a good phrase if you think about it in the right perspective. But the way they always used it was, oh, you know, your economy is not actively contracting because we're not in the depths of a global financial crisis. You should be doing budget austerity and paying down your debt is how that was interpreted in Europe.
0: So that's what what fixing the roof
4: is. In their view, yeah. Fixing the roof being like lowering your debt to GDP ratio. (laughs) And they talked about this all day. You fix the roof and the sun is shining. But so then you have the, the space to expand your debt to GDP ratio when, you know, things go bad. There's an obvious problem here, which is that you can't fix the roof if you're not spending money. <laughs> like, you know, they, 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 What they literally did was not fix the roof when the sun was shining. And then now that it's raining and they've saved a lot of cash, it's getting wet. I mean, if I don't ever draw this analogy too much, like, uh, sure, know, sure. I mean, they, they basically had an opportunity to do all these things when natural resources prices were low, when there was a lot of labor slack, when real interest rates were negative and they didn't take it. I mean, real interest rates are still negative, but- other than that, I mean, they completely missed this opportunity. I mean, I remember, I mentioned this in one of my, my research notes, it's really striking that the last time Russia attacked Ukraine in a really big way, it was in early 2014, basically eight years ago. And eight years is a long time to make an adjustment. And it just didn't happen at all. And I remember writing at that time, back when I was at Bloomberg, actually writing, writing a piece saying, look, like Russia is doing this, but like long-term, they're not in a great strategic position because Europe always has the option to diversify away from Russian gas. And then Russia has no leverage. Ironically, they didn't do that. But I mean, it's not like no one was talking about this back then. They just missed their window. And now they're trying to do it. And you know, as you said, now they're doing it at like the worst possible time because they're being squeezed. And you know, it'll get done eventually. But you know, it's, it's, it's really striking how they sort of missed the, you know, the focus on the sort of financial savings and not on the fact that you know, there's some things that are worth doing that should have been done At some point, you're going to do it anyway, because you need to do it. But, you know, if you have a chance of doing it when things are cheap, that's the best time to do it. And they miss that window. Well,
0: before we go, and that was fantastic. Obviously, we've talked a lot about the energy linkages. But just before before we get out, you know, you've also written a little bit about the financial linkages and the various exposures that Europe and Germany have to Russia, all of which are now almost, you know, some of these, the value of these assets and relationships might in many cases simply go to zero. But how big are we talking about here for some of the, the non-energy connections?
4: There's a lot of of trade and financial links between Europe and Russia. And I mean, it makes sense. Russia is a large country. It's Europe's neighbor. That's sort of you know what you'd expect to happen. That is probably a lot of that's going to go to zero. There's going to be an economic hit. And I think one thing, one of the reasons I initially had been was not sure. I wouldn't say skeptical. But I was not sure that that Europe would be willing to kind of put in place the kind of sanctions that we've ended up seeing. Is because there is a corollary here, which is that there's going to be a real hit to European businesses, both um, businesses that export to Russia and to banks that have relations with Russian businesses. And so um, we're talking in like the hundreds of billions of dollars in terms of potential losses here. I mean, that's definitely manageable for an economy that's the size of Europe and. You know, again, to use Lindner's phrase, it's it's, a, it's an investment in freedom, so it's it's worth it's a worthwhile to bear that cost, but it is but it's significant. I mean, you have something like, in total, global banks, which is well, global banks, in this in practice basically means U.S., UK, EU, Japan, something like 150 billion dollars of exposure to Russian, you know, borrowers. That's probably going to mostly go to zero. I mean, the good news for them is that a lot of that exposure is through local subsidiaries, and so in practice, what that means is that it's Russian depositors and Russian. You know, bank bondholders and other Russian banks are going to take a lot of that hit, although not all, but a bunch of it. You know, the exporters are going to get hit pretty soon. I mean, Russia imported about $370 billion worth of goods and services from the rest of the world in 2021. The majority of that is from countries that are sanctioning Russia. So that's going to be a hit. Again, we're talking about a very large economies. So, you know, in the aggregate, it's not going to be a huge hit, but it's going to feel going to be notable. And of course, it's going to have you know, multiplier effects as, as those businesses, customers you know, react to the lost sales. So there is a hit to be taken. I mean, I think Russia was counting on this, these kinds of relationships preventing any kind of thing in the past. I mean, that's what happened in 2014, right? Like they did something that everyone said was illegal and horrible, and then nothing really happened. I mean, things happened, but it wasn't significant the way like we're seeing now. And I think quite frankly, if it hadn't been for the fact that the Ukrainians fought back and are still fighting back, I think there's a decent chance that Europe probably would have rolled over. Because, you know, what was what would have been the point? Right. From their perspective, the fact that it's now actually still a live question, I think, is a lot of what's motivating this and people's willingness to, you know, bear that economic pain because it is real. And I think, obviously, if you're looking at the rest of the world globally, not to, you know, point fingers at any countries, but you can imagine other countries that might be thinking potentially about invading some of their neighbors at some point in the future and wondering about, you know, how those economic linkages, whether protect them or not from, you know, Western responses. but I mean, you know, seeing this is, is uh, I think I think Putin was not crazy for thinking that this would not have happened you know, because of those links. But at the same time, I think like it's, it, it is, you know, once you you do something like what he did and you see the response, I think that, that it's not surprising that there's been this sort of very strong pushback and, and willingness to take these kind of losses.
0: Well, uh, Matt Matt Klein, thank you so much for coming on OddLots. Uh, I learned a, a ton from that very, very useful conversation.
3: Yeah, that was great.
0: Thanks very much. You know, I always learn a lot talking to Matt and following him on Twitter and reading his newsletter. One thing that just really strikes me is uh, he has such a good command of, like, the data. So a lot of, you know, it's in addition to just sort of like the theoretical big ideas, like he really knows the numbers behind all of it, which is one reason it's great to talk to him.
3: Yeah. Also, I didn't realize he had uh, such historical knowledge of uh, oil and gas pipelines. So that's always fun fun to discover. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I, I guess I'm trying to think like what the big takeaway here is. I mean, I guess like, I guess it does seem like even before the recent crisis, Germany had changed some of its attitude towards fiscal spending. Um, You know, similar to other governments in the wake of the pandemic, uh, there seems to be a greater acceptance of spending on, on social systems and infrastructure and things like that. And this would seem to be something that's going to to ramp that up. But at the same time. I I guess the offset of all of this is we're sort of talking about building up supply chain independence, energy security independence. It does feel like we're sort of this is so this is such a cliche, but it does feel like we are (laughs) moving away from that interconnected, globalized world previously. Right.
0: You're right. It is a cliche and people talk about it a, a lot. But here you do have this like very sharp break. And, Mm. you know, it's very hard. And, you know, we talked about this in our sanctions episode, where even if the formal sanctions lift, it's very hard to imagine so many of these other uh, ancillary actions, particularly the corporate announcements, reversing. Mm. It's very hard to see, uh, you know, Germany reversing on its plans to to invest in domestic energy or increase its military. So there are a lot of actions that have been taken that, um, you know, we are going to be – pushing ourselves into a new direction that even two or three weeks ago didn't seem didn't seem very likely.
3: Yeah. And then the the other thing I'm, I'm thinking about just in terms of things that didn't seem very likely two or three weeks ago and maybe now are is, of course, restarting the nuclear plants in yeah. Germany, because it does. Yeah, go ahead.
0: I was just going to say, you know, the sort of bigger picture, the big picture thing to me, was that phrase as Matt put it, fix your roof when the sun shines? Yeah. But it's very interesting. It's like, well, yeah, but then the question is, what is your definition of fixing the roof? So if your definition of fixing the roof is just getting your debt to GDP ratio back below some number, then it's like, okay, great, your economy's booming. Uh, Cut spending and then the numbers there, but you would hope or you would think that maybe fixing the roof could mean something like, well, having a more sustainable energy mix, having a more sustainable domestic infrastructure and so forth. And it really is costly, and maybe there's something that we have to talk about more in the context even of U.S. infrastructure spending, which is going to go up a lot. It's like we're doing all this at a time when commodity prices are booming. Every single day I look up at the terminal and commodity prices are soaring. This is going to be much costlier from a real perspective, more difficult, more time-consuming, because we're now in an era of tight commodities. It would have been much easier in a period uh, when so many of these commodity markets were structurally looser.
3: Well, totally. But it also feels like, I I mean, the message certainly from the Biden administration has been that the the solution for high prices is investment. And so, you know, if you want to get away from that, you're going to have to invest. And the timing's terrible. And yeah, maybe we should have done it earlier, but you kind of have to do it now. Otherwise, it's just going to get worse. But it does feel like there are no easy solutions again another cliche i am all about cliches today apparently
0: yeah that's okay but uh no i thought i i thought that was great and Mm. just the whole world i think you know we i want to do more there's so much to do i think on energy specifically this year like uh all the different questions about lng infrastructure alone is so fascinating we need to find someone who can like really get into like you know the business of, okay, energy prices might be six times in Europe what they are here, but you don't have the infrastructure to move it because of liquefaction capacity, because of terminal capacity, huge opportunities for someone. And it's just a question of like who and what is the time frame?
3: Also, pipeline historians get in touch because I'm very curious about, you know, the decisions that go into building these things and how long it takes to um, reverse or alter course. I think that's going to be a pretty important thing going forward. Totally. All right. Shall we leave it there?
0: Let's leave it there. Okay.
3: This has been another episode of the All Thoughts Podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway.
0: And I'm Jill Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. Follow our guest, Matthew Klein. He is the uh, founder and editor of The Overshoot. He is at M underscore C underscore Klein. Follow our producer, Laura Carlson. She's at Laura M. Carlson. And very sad news, we have to report. This is uh Laura's last episode as our producer. She's uh returning to history, her her true love of history. So very sad news. Laura, are you there? I am. I'm here. Can you can you say a few were, we're gonna miss you so much. We're gonna <laughs> we're gonna it's it's unbelievable. This is devastating. We're going to miss you. Uh, You've been an an amazing producer the last, I think, how long has it been? Three years you've been the Odd Lodge producer? Yeah, well, you know, in COVID time, it's actually been about two decades. So yeah, just about three years. Yeah, that's exactly right. What are you going to be doing next? Um, I'm, as you said, I'm going back to my 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 roots in history. I'm I'm writing a book. Uh, I'm going to be doing some teaching and lecturing. Um, unfortunately, on, on nothing related to to markets mm. or or anything like that. It's all culinary history. So so good food food history um, stories of restaurants, those kinds of things. So so yeah. you definitely got to be a guest one day. Yeah. I would love that. I, I am there for that. Anytime you want me to talk food history on odd lots, I I mean it'd be the best combination of my various worlds. So I'm up for it. Great. We we will definitely make it happen. Thank you. Thank you so much, Laura. It just it's been a it's been a real pleasure working with it. Oh, thank you both. This has been this has been great and, and a wild ride. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, we're definitely uh, gonna continue to follow your work everyone, even uh, after this episode, she won't be our producer anymore. Follow Laura Carlson at Laura M. Carlson. Follow uh, all her work. Thank you so much, Laura. Be sure to follow the head of podcast at Bloomberg, Francesca Levy at Francesca Today, and check out all of our podcasts here at Bloomberg under the handle at podcasts. Thanks for listening.
3: It's Tracy Alloway.
0: And Joe Wisenthal.
3: We are the co hosts of the Odd Thoughts podcast, and we want to tell you about a new podcast and video series you are not going to want to miss The Deal, co hosted by Yankees legend Alex Rodriguez.
0: Every week, A Rod and Bloomberg reporter Jason Kelly speak with big time athletes, entertainers, and executives
3: like Maria Sharapova, Michael Strahan, Derek Jeter, and more. The deal takes you behind the scenes into the world of sports, media, and entertainment
0: and dives into the wins, losses, and lessons learned. Along the way. From Bloomberg Podcasts and Bloomberg Originals, you can listen to The Deal on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch it on Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Originals on YouTube.